1: Welcome to Healing at the Edge, a podcast featuring interviews, archive talks, and teachings on conscious living, conscious dying with Ramdev Dale Borglum, brought to you by the Be Here Now Network. Dale has been a meditation teacher for nearly 50 years and has been at the bedside of the dying and their loved ones for over 40 years. He was the director of the Hanuman Foundation and founded the first center for conscious dying in Santa Fe, New Mexico. He's taught with Stephen Levine, Ram Dass, and countless others on the spiritual path. Dale is still working with the Dying today. For more information, please visit livingdying.org. Hi, my name is Aurora Leonard, and welcome to Healing at the Edge. I work with Ramdev at the Living Dying Project. It's a nonprofit dedicated to serving others in their most sacred, vulnerable time. In this episode, Dale shares stories of working with clients and how the fear of death can reveal where we don't trust our practice. Now please note, this episode does contain sensitive content regarding mental health and medical aid in dying. If you'd like to learn more, please visit our website at livingdying.org. It includes meditations, additional talks, and courses with Ramdev on conscious living, conscious dying, and learn how you too can do this work. This work is sorely needed in today's world. He will also be teaching live, in person, at Esalen Institute in Big Sur, California, June 3rd through the 5th. It's going to be a special, intimate, three-day workshop, and we would love to see you there. So for now, let's listen to Death as a Mirror, and we hope you enjoy this episode.
2: Welcome, everybody. I got the flu about five weeks ago, and I'm still coughing. My voice is... Tenuous at times, so please forgive me when I if I start coughing, that will happen. I know you might think this is strange, but I've kind of enjoyed being sick. It keeps reminding me that I'm I'm not my body, and that my body's having these experiences that aren't the usual experiences. So I just keep getting reminded. So Van asked how Jackie is. And you may remember that at our last meeting, I made the sad announcement that Mimi, who had been in this group, was a very active member of the group, had passed away. And in fact, her memorial is tomorrow, which I'm not going to be able to be at, unfortunately. There's also somebody in her group named Jackie, who spoke very, very little because she had advanced lung cancer and uh, really could speak very, very little. And on top of that, there were a lot of times where she wasn't even being, wasn't well enough to be at the group itself. Anyway, uh, Jackie left her body on Monday. And I'd like to talk about that some because I was at her side as she died. And she was the first person I had ever been around who was availing herself of the California medical aid in dying act. She had gone to the doctors and and was in a clearly deteriorating state. She was on oxygen. She really was very limited in her ability to get around. She was in pain. And she decided that she wanted to take her life. I had some moral ambiguity about being at her bedside i have some feeling that we die when we're supposed to die but at the same time she said i trust you more than anybody i need you to be there and i remembered a story where many many years ago ramdas had driven up to seattle in his antique jaguar automobile and left his car up there he gave some talk or something. He flew back to California where we were living together, and he said, "Would you fly up to Seattle and get my car and drive it back home?" I said, "Sure." He said, "I think it would be better if you had my driver's license. If people see you driving the Ramdas mobile, and I'm not going to be driving for these few days, so here, take my driver's license." And on the back of the driver's license, it said that he was a organ donor, and I said, "Hey Ramdas, I." I read somewhere that if you donate your organs, you can't get enlightened. I don't know where I read that. I don't know if it's true at all, but that's what I said. And he said, if my organs help somebody else, it's okay for me to not be enlightened. And I thought that was a really great answer, right? So if I'm there helping somebody essentially commit suicide, is that bad karma for me or not? But the most important thing was helping Jackie. She was in a very delicate situation in the sense that she had great fear of dying and great fear of suffering. So sometimes the fear of suffering was greater and sometimes the fear of dying was greater. And she was going back and forth. Obviously, she got to the point where the fear of suffering was greater than the fear of dying most of the time and set in motion this whole situation of getting the drugs from the doctor, calling the hospice, setting a date. So there we were at her apartment in Santa Rafael. And uh, there was me and Jackie, obviously, and two people from hospice, a nurse and a social worker. Hospice is there in case things go wrong. If somebody can't get the potion down, they just get started. They take the poison and don't take enough of it and then, other things have to start happening that we need a nurse to do, but so there's and there was a death doula uh, that she hired a friend of mine who is Jerry Grace Lyons, the woman that runs final passages, a very wonderful organization that you might want to check out and finally, there was Jackie's organizer, trustee, executor. Person who's going to deal with all the details of body and belongings and things like that. So the Death Ghoul and I got there two hours before she was going to end her life. And she was very, very nervous and i sat down and I put my arm around her, and hospice came. And all along she said I might chicken out. Jackie was an atheist. She had never had any devotional bone in her body that I could ever find. So I tried to explain dying to her from the standpoint of non-duality, no self. And she was a very intelligent person. But for some reason, maybe my density or her, whatever, she could not begin to understand what I was talking about. It was always frustrating to both of us that when I would talk about no self, She had no idea what I was really trying to get at. Okay, so she didn't really have faith in anything. She didn't have faith in her own being. She didn't have faith in God. She just didn't want to suffer anymore. So we got to the point where she was going to take these two pills an hour before she was going to die, the two anti-nausea pills that would then allow her to drink 25 grams of Morphine enough to kill three elephants, supposedly, which tastes really, really horrible, without throwing it up. And she said, "I can't do it. I don't want to do it." And I'm thinking, it's not my job to talk her into anything. You know, this is her. This is her show. But I said, "Okay, Jackie, let's think about this." You've been saying all along that you don't want to live like this in any longer. So I understand that it's really scary to think about taking these drugs and knowing that you only have an hour to live. But getting as calm and non-reactive as you can, what would it be like if you don't take the pills? And what would it be like if you do take the pills? Think about that as calmly as you can. And she thought for a very short amount of time, and she said, give me the pills. So she took those two pills, and I'm sitting there with my arm around her. I've got my laptop that is all this great music. Uh, She had lived in Hawaii, so we were playing Hawaiian music. And the the piece of music she wanted to hear again and again was Krishna singing Devi Puja from One Track Heart, one of my favorite pieces of music. And I'm playing Gregorian chants and things. And I was reading, I read her some poems, a couple of which I will read back to you. But she was sitting so that she could see her DVD player, which had a digital clock on it. So she'd say things, I've got 45 minutes to live, I've got 30 minutes to live. It is a very, very intense situation. I've been around many people who died naturally, where you couldn't say 45 minutes. You were just, There was this gradual process happening in a way that was quite unpredictable but here we knew that there was a time and at one point she started saying fuck shit i what did i do oh my god but you know i kept playing soothing music she had been judging her spiritual life as not adequate that she couldn't understand non-duality she didn't have any devotion uh she was not trusting the pain She was not trusting the light. There was nothing she could trust. So imagine having an hour to live and not having anything to trust. How how frightening that would be. So here's one of the poems I read her. It's a Thich Nhat Hanh poem, Oneness. The moment I die, I will try to come back to you as quickly as possible. I promise it will not take long. Isn't it true? I am already with you in every moment. I come back to you in every moment. Just look, feel my presence. If you want to cry, please cry, and know that I will cry with you. The tears you shed will heal us both. Your tears are mine. The earth I tread this morning transcends history. Spring and winter are both present in the moment. The young leaf and the dead leaf are really one. My my feet touch deathlessness, and my feet are yours. Walk with me now. Let us enter the dimension of oneness and see the cherry tree blossom in winter. Why should we talk about death? I don't need to die to be back with you. And she felt some comfort with that, Then eventually we moved to the bedroom after the hour was up and the death doula prepared this potion that she'd actually taken a course to do so that you don't inhale the fumes yourself or whatever. And Jackie got this glass of milky white substance that looked like about 12 ounces, which apparently tasted Completely horrible. She tried it with a straw. She tried it without a straw. She could only get down a, a very small amount. She said, I can't drink this. It's too horrible, which is the worst possibility when you just get started and you can't finish. So we kind of cheered her on. You can do it. Uh, at one point, she wanted toothpaste to rub inside of her mouth to get the taste out. And she finally finished about two thirds to three quarters of the glass. And within a minute or so, became unconscious. And then very slowly, over the course of 45 minutes, her breathing got slower and slower and slower, and she finally died. To me, there was some aspect of violence about the whole thing. It was was not the dying gently into the light. There was a lot of resistance along the way. The, The drug itself felt completely horrible to her, tasted horrible. There was a sort of like a quality of fighting emotions the whole way, and I was very glad to be there and support her. But the reason I'm bringing this up because is I, I want to kind of talk about the lessons that I I got out of all this myself when I was trying to explain to Jackie about <clears throat> there's not a you that dies in the way you think you are, uh, and I tried to explain it in every kind of way when we. When we're afraid of death, perhaps the deepest reason that we're afraid of death is we don't know who we are. We believe in a personal, unique, separate identity. But if we really examine it, we'll find that the identity depends on endless collection of events and things and ideas that we keep propping up our, our, our biography. The Dalai Lama said, to think that there's no self is completely ridiculous. Okay, there's you of a self and I of a self, but it's not the kind of self we're thinking about. We have we create a false self, but that's what makes it hard to die. We we create this caretaker self that tries to care about all the intrusive things or the abandoning environment of family life. Is it possible for me to be around Jackie and? See that there's this real self and there's this false self, and the false self's going to die, and realize that the whole time she's free, that I'm seeing the whole place in her. To me, that was the deepest thing I could do other than to be of emotional comfort. And she reminded me of another client who was the opposite and yet was deeply the same. The other client, let's call this fellow client number two was a man dying also of lung cancer. Uh, he lived in northern New Mexico. I worked with him late last year. And as opposed to Jackie, he had done so much meditation practice. All of his all of his adult life, he'd been going to retreats. He had been to Zen retreats, Vipassana retreats. He was very committed to practice. And after he'd moved to New Mexico, he, he also got deeply involved in devotional practices and yet he also felt stuck in in a way that jackie felt stuck he he felt in the same way that jackie felt that his spiritual life had been a failure that he was supposed to he was supposed to get somewhere that with all the meditating and all the mantras and all the chanting and all the loving God and everything that he was supposed to feel a particular thing and that he and because he didn't feel this that his life was an ordinary life in the way that our lives are ordinary lives that as he approached death that he he had failed he had failed in some very fundamental way that neither of these two clients, Jackie or client number one here, client number two, whatever I called him, believed that grace was always available, that the presence is always there. And the problem is that presence is not a thing, that consciousness is not a thing. And in the way that Maharaji would say things like, I'm always in communion with you or be peaceful. I am everywhere. It takes a certain surrender that goes beyond doing and accumulation and understanding to realize that even though there's something to get, it's not a thing. Yesterday, I was driving up here to the mountains to be with my family, my son. I was playing a Tim Ferriss podcast where he was talking to woman named Susan Kane. I really, really loved the podcast. And she was talking about the bittersweetness of life. And in fact in, in Tibetan Buddhism they talk about how compassion is bittersweet. It's a combination of sadness and joy. There's there's sadness at how much suffering there is. There's joy that the heart is open. There's this Leonard Cohen line where he says there is a crack in everything, and that is where the light enters. So <laughs> it's not about fixing the cracks, or avoiding the cracks, or filling the cracks in, but allowing the cracks to be there, allow us our, allowing ourselves to be broken, allowing the light to come in where we have these, these cracks, rather than feeling that spiritual practice is about going beyond the cracks. And she quoted Susan Kane, this which I think is just remarkable passage from a Rumi poem. And in the Rumi poem, it's a long poem and there's this protagonist in the poem who's kind of complaining that he's been praying all of his life and God has never answered. He prays, he doesn't get a response. And then Rumi says or the Voice of the guide in the poem says, The longing you express is the return message. The grief you cry out from draws you toward union. Your pure sadness that wants help is the secret cup. Let me read that again. The longing you express is the return message. The grief you cry out from draws you toward union your pure sadness that wants help is the secret cup so whether you're an atheist or a believer a devotee we all feel this longing there doesn't need to be any kind of dichotomy being in this bittersweet state of mind predisposes one to being more alive to creativity to wonder the Root of the word longing is to become longer. You're making yourself longer. You're reaching out from your yearning for this this connection. And that Thich Han poem where he's talking about oneness is really saying it's okay to rest in that longing. There's one other poem I I read, uh, Jackie, Uh, shortly before she was dying. I read this before in another meeting, I think. It's by my friend Jennifer Wellwood. the Dakini Speaks. A Dakini is a tantric priestess of ancient India who, quote, carries the soul of the dead to the sky. This Buddhist figure is particularly upheld in Tibetan Buddhism. The Dakini is a female being of generally volatile temperament who acts as the muse for spiritual practice. Okay. So here's what the Dakini says. My friends, let's grow up. Let's stop pretending we don't know the deal here. Or if we truly haven't noticed, let's wake up and notice. Look, everything that can be lost will be lost. It's simple, how can we have missed it for so long? Let's grieve our losses fully like human ripe beings. But please, let's not be so shocked by them. Let's not act so betrayed as though life has broken her secret promise to us. She's, talk, he's talking, about, she's talking about the bittersweetness here. Impermanence is life's only promise to us and she keeps it with ruthless impeccability. To a child, she seems cruel, but she is only wild, and her compassion exquisitely precise. Brilliantly penetrating, luminous with truth, she strips away the unreal to show us the real. This is the true ride. Let's give ourselves to it. Let's stop making deals for a safe passage. There isn't one anyway, and the cost is too high. We are not children anymore. The true adult being gives everything from what cannot be lost. Let's dance the wild dance of no hope. Maharaji said the body passes away. Everything is impermanent except love of God. The world is just a dream, an illusion. You can't take anything with you when you die. The only important thing is how much you love God. Jackie didn't love God. She didn't have a, any concept of God. She grew, grew up as an atheist in the Bronx. Maybe it's a little easier to have faith if there's a thing to have faith in. But even the thing we have faith in it is in some way an illusion. So can we trust impermanence? Can we trust surrender? Can we trust? believing in something that is not a thing. And it really, just being with Jackie, being with that process and remembering that even this other client who had done all this practice, meditative practice, devotional practice, still had a hard time accepting that there is this bittersweet quality that as Rumi said there, the longing you express is the return message. The grief you cry out from draws you toward union. Your pure sadness that wants help is the secret cup. So it's really, in a very fundamental way, accepting our humanity that is contextualized in something far vaster. But the problem with trying to be spiritual is we often forget that being human, there is gonna be grief. It's not that we're going to go beyond it. There will always be grief. There will always be longing. It's the longing itself. It's that the, the journey is the goal. There's not some enlightened state where all of that, all of that poignancy, all of that bittersweetness goes away. Maharaji, who seemed to be a, full, a fully enlightened being, would talk about the poignancy of his situation, that there's kind of a loneliness. There was nobody there with him and that, trying to help people and be in ashrams uh, was in a way, like he, he called it being in central jail, right? And, and three days before he died, he said, now I'm escaping central jail. Being in a body is, is being in jail in a certain sense. It could be a, a joyful dance when we're in jail, but it's, it's limiting. And there's this struggle against the limit that makes it hard to accept grace in the moment. I've been feeling so close to God since this, this encounter with Jack. I've been feeling like when I go to bed at night, there's me and God are have our heads on the pillow. Or that my, my head is not on the pillow, but on God's lap, if you will. In terms of practice and how practice can kind of distract us, we think we're supposed to accomplish something or get somewhere. Can we trust the power of our meditation to heal? Can we, can we trust this strength? And uh, if we don't trust the strength of our practice, that <laughs> it brings us there, then practice will be weak. Belief gives the meditation a firm foundation. It engages the mind in a way that is effective and total. But we don't trust our practice because we think We're supposed to get a thing. We're supposed to get to a a stable state. And I have gone into wonderful, wonderful states. I've been in remarkable states during long periods of meditation. But they've never stayed. I'm still this neurotic. I'm still trying to give a nice talk and be a nice guy and fight through somebody who can hardly use my voice right now. The title of this talk is Death is a Mirror. And it was a mirror for Jackie. It was a mirror for me. It was a mirror for client number two last year. I choose to be around dying people because of this mirroring effect. It has certainly deepened my compassion. It has certainly deepened my appreciation for the suffering that I and everybody I know is going through. But I'm basically doing it so that I can remember what is real and what's not real moment to moment to moment. So, uh, Rondav?
3: Yeah. So that, that book you referenced um, is coming out in another day or so. Bittersweet, How Sorrow and Longing
2: Make Us Whole by Susan Kane. And right on the coming right on the heels of this experience with Jackie, it kind of put into poetical words what we were going through there. That she was hoping that my spiritual advice would take her beyond the grief, would take her beyond the longing, that everything would be fine. And it's more a full acceptance of the fact that we are grieving human beings. So before we open this up to discussion, I'd like to do this guided meditation, and we don't even have to call it a meditation. Maybe we even did this uh, two weeks ago, I don't remember. It's a sort of guided dissolving all these expectations of who we think we are. There's this false self, this historical self, all these conditioned qualities, and that's the self that's not real. There is a true self that doesn't die. Here is, a, here is a rather quick way to touch what's real and beyond what's not real. It kind of reminds me of what happened to Ramana Maharshi. Somebody, Some of you may know his story. He was a teenage, teenage boy, 16 years old, I believe. And he was in his uncle's library and for no reason that he could understand all of a sudden he felt like he was dying so he he felt well if i'm if i'm dying if my body dies do i die no i'm not not really my body my body's an object my thoughts are an object my emotions are an object my feelings are an object so if i'm dying what is it that dies who am i really and in the short amount of time he apparently became Fully awakened or pretty much awakened, and maybe the rest kind of filled in the the empty spots later on. And he came to the conclusion that I am Satchitananda. I am existence, consciousness, bliss. I am pure consciousness. I've got a body, I've got thoughts, I've got emotions, but that's not really who I am. And he spent the rest of his life becoming a great teacher. He had many, many thousands of students many enlightened followers. He moved to this place in southern India where a friend of mine now lives, Arunachala. He saw the mountain as the, the representation of Shiva and he worshipped this mountain. But his his practices, what we're, we're going to do here, essentially, is asking, who am I? Not as an intellectual question. You're not intellectually asking a question, but you're working with resting in the I am. What is the I that's experiencing this moment? Let's begin this guided exploration. Just begin by settling down, letting your mind begin to settle. Let your attention come into your body. And begin to release energy downward, out of your head, out into your lower belly, dropping down, dropping out of trying to understand. And as you're doing this, let go of identification with your senses. You can still hear the sound of my voice. You can feel your butt on whatever you're sitting on. You can feel your clothing on your body, the movement of your breath. Letting go of identifying that that's who I am. Letting go of identification with all your sensory experience. They come, they go. It's not who you are. Letting go of thoughts and emotions. Thoughts will come, but not who you are. Don't believe it. Letting go of believing that you are the thoughts. Thoughts, emotions, sensory sensory experience, coming and going. Now even let go of the observer. That imaginary person you think is watching the whole thing. That I, that Dale or Judy or John or Linda, whoever is watching, letting go of identification with that. Letting go of Matt and Van and Sheila. Let go of I can't and I will. Let go of seriousness. Just dissolve into space. Fear arises. You need to understand who am I. Let go of identification with the fear. Don't struggle. Don't be distracted, yet nothing particular to do. Distraction comes from fear for survival. Letting go of all frame of reference for your experience. Letting experience arise and dissolve into spaciousness. Dissolving even the expectation of survival. Resting whether the mind is moving or not. The fundamental deception is the need to survive. Who you think you are needs to survive, which creates aggression and lack of spaciousness. Space doesn't get distracted by pleasant or unpleasant projections. Not distracted yet nothing particular to do. Intense clarity with immense relaxation, not just bare attention, but Looking not at the thought, but through the thought. Letting go not of the object, but of the subject. Resting in spaciousness. I won't ring a bell at the end because we're not meditating. And also, I didn't bring a bell on my trip. (laughs) Two reasons not to ring a bell. So can we just rest in spaciousness, come back into the room together? Can you practice for a moment with your eyes open? No meditation, no distraction. Letting go of identification with the observer not needing to survive. Letting go of that aggression that arises when we think we need to protect, figure out, understand, survive. You could do a non-practice practice of just breathing into your heart, And when you breathe out, dissolve into spaciousness. Dissolving into space from the heart, moment to moment. So, who would like to be the brave person that? begins to speak about all the things I've talked about or your reaction to this practice, non-practice. With experience with psychedelics and people that are nearing closer to leaving their body, or even before that, uh, in being in a proper set and setting, have you found uh, in your experience uh, working with people before they transition that they were ever, uh, they were able to let go a bit lighter because of uh, their experiences with psychedelics
4: there's a study done a number of years ago they developed a measure of fear of death and they gave this questionnaire to four groups of people doctors ministers psychedelic drug takers and meditators And it's kind of a setup, obviously. And doctors and ministers are significantly more afraid of dying than psychedelic drug takers and meditators. So that anything you can do to to be comfortable in letting go of control, of letting go of that sense of aggression that comes from needing to survive will help cut through fear of death. Being a doctor and being a minister in many cases, increases one's feeling that you're in control of things. Whereas psychedelics, taking psychedelics and meditating, in the case of meditating, is gradually learning to let go of being in control. And psychedelics is a much more sudden learning and letting go of control. So I haven't done any statistical analysis, even though I have a PhD in doing that kind of thing. But yeah, the people who have taken psychedelics generally are not as afraid of dying as people who haven't. But there are all kinds of ways to learn to let go of control. Raising triplets, watching people you love very deeply die, being a gardener. I mean there's, there's psychedelics is a way. It's a very available way, it's a very illegal way temporarily. I guess maybe if you're in Oakland, California, you can take mushrooms these days. I'm not quite sure what the law is. There's something like that. You know what that's about, Carly, how that works?
5: I just know that it's legal in Oakland as opposed to like Berkeley or San Francisco. You can go to Oakland and buy and use um, mushrooms. They're legal. Just mushrooms though, not not other psychedelics.
6: Right.
4: (laughs) So anyway, uh, the answer to your question is yes.
3: you know, as you were talking about bitter and sweet, um, I, you know, I haven't, I can't tell anything about what was going on inside of Jackie or, uh, your client number two, but, um, I was thinking, um, maybe from where in my kind of heart mind, they were both in the bitter, and not in the sweet. And I remember my experience with Kamala, my living dying patient, and she was very much in the bitter, pretty consistent, felt like I was in the sweet, And there was that connection between the two. And so, you know, as I was listening to you, I was really realizing I'm wanting to be in the sweet, but <laughs> maybe I'll be in the bitter and, and that'll be okay. Um, uh, because ultimately, um, that passage takes me to a place where there 's um, no bitter and sweet it 's just there 's no self
2: yeah, so I mean to me that 's what Jack and client number two the problem was they were trying to be in the sweet mm. rather than the bitter, and I think it 's not trying to be in the sweet it 's trying to it 's accepting the bittersweet mm. that the sweet by itself is something that we've certainly all experienced. It comes and goes. It's it's one can do a lot of chanting. One can as I said when when Jackie in the last hour of her life, the piece of music she kept wanting to hear was Krishanas singing Devi Puja from one track heart, and that's maybe one of the sweetest pieces of music he's ever sung. Very comforting, very, very sweet piece of music. But sweetness comes and goes, right? And it's, it's the acceptance of the bittersweet, that to the extent we can accept the bitter, the sweet is contained in it. It's, it's, all, it's all bittersweet. And it's the grasping at the sweetness and the, the resistance to the bitter that causes all this struggle, wanting to survive, wanting to, it, it leads to a certain kind of subtle aggression. I mean, in a way, once again, being around Maharaji, there is a very bittersweet quality about it, that there is a sense that he was living in this, in this profound sweetness, but he was, also, he was also feeling my suffering. He knew how inadequate I felt, how, how I was striving to open to be more receptacle for love and a, a vehicle for love and how difficult it was. The human condition is bittersweet, and very often getting on the spiritual path is an attempt to avoid our humanity, and our humanity is going to die. We're in the school of human experience. Why not take the curriculum? Someone once said. (laughs)
6: Thanks, Dale. That was that was just a very moving reflection altogether. And I think the most impactful statement that you made was, "To me, imagine dying with nothing to trust." That just seemed like a bottomless well of inquiry. But my question is about medication. And I don't know, I guess this is this could be a kind of a big issue. Buddhists have an opinion about, about being medicated at the time of death, or or do you have an opinion about whether assisted medically assisted suicide? has any effect on the normal dissolution process that the the Bardo teachings describe?
2: From the literature of near-death experiences, as soon as the consciousness leaves the body, it's not affected by what's happening to the body. If somebody is heavily medicated, if somebody has had profound bodily trauma through an accident, if somebody's in a great deal of physical pain, if if somebody is demented, that as soon as consciousness starts leaving the body, that the limitations or impingements on the physicality does no longer affect the journey of consciousness into whatever might be happening next. When I was running the Dying Center, It was back in the day before hospice wasn't as good as it is now in uh, titrating pain medication, and that that people were sometimes in physical pain. And my experience was that it's good to take as little pain medication as possible for one to, uh, and then use meditation to deal with the fear of pain. But if you're not taking enough medication, and you're resisting the pain, that resistance is making it harder to be present. There's not really necessarily a black mark on your cosmic record that oh, this person was medicated when they died. There, there is a, a story that I've told before, where there was a young man who uh, came to Ramdas infrequently. Ramdas was going around the country teaching after he first came back from India. And this young teenage guy was a, a super committed yogi. And he'd come to Ramdas and say, Here's the practices I'm doing now. And I've come to this stage. What should I do next? And Ramdas, who was a, a very accomplished yogi, would give him pranayama practices or meditative practices. And eventually, Ramdas got the message that this kid had been doing very intensive pranayama, well on LSD, and exploded his heart and he died. And Ramdas felt pretty guilty about that. So he contacted the boy's mother, or the mother contacted him, I forget. And Ramdas got a picture of this guy. And when we went to India together, Ramdas brought the picture to Maharaji and said, What happened to this young man? And Maharaji said, he was with God when he died. His journey is complete. And Ramla said, but Maharaji, when he died, he was on yogi medicine. He was on psychedelics. And Maharaji says, it doesn't make any difference. He was with God when he died. His, His journey into consciousness is complete consciousness doesn't care how you get there and if you need some medication to not be resisting fine maybe your clarity maybe your concentration won't be as great if you're taking morphine as if you're not taking morphine you know in buddhism they have these vows no intoxicants no killing no stealing no lying no Uh, inappropriate sexual uh, contact during retreats. But at the same time, if you're you're in so much pain that you can't concentrate, take some medication. Consciousness has no judgment. It has no rules. Whatever we need to do to be as present as we can, we can use it. And when we're dying, the, the limitations of the body are not limiting consciousness. There are stories of people in Near-death experiences. Who had been blind all of their life, and then the near-death experience could see what was going on in the room, and recount what what colored clothes the medical staff had on, for instance.
5: Dale, this is Nicolas. Thank you for thank you for these today. Um, I'm wondering about um, one's connection to one's early spiritualities and how they might manifest at the moment of dying. And I'm saying that because that happened to my uh, grandmother who kind of left the Catholic Church. And when she was dying, I heard her say the Hail Mary. And uh, I also um, heard uh, Lori mention something similar. And as somebody who... Doesn't um abide and doesn't go by the politics of the hierarchy of the Catholic Church, and yet I'm not able to leave the church um It's like once a catholic dot 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 so I gave up on that i'm I'm a Catholic <laughs> without the trappings of um the hierarchy and all of that uh, could you do you think you can talk to that and
2: Oh uh. Well, I was raised as a Protestant. And as soon as I went off to college, I stopped going to church and forgot about the whole thing as completely as I possibly could. Most of the ministers that were in the churches that I was going to were not people that I particularly respected or honored their wisdom. And then I ended up going all the way to India in order to uh, find God, and Maharaji gave me a mantra that is basically uh, about christ <laughs> so uh carl jung says that to become an integral a completely integrated personality that one has to go back to the religion of one's childhood at some point and find some completion there some closure uh i'm not sure he means you have to start going back to church and and uh, show up every Sunday morning necessarily or Saturday or whatever kind of religion it is. But uh, I think if there's that very often as, as young people, we have a misunderstanding about religion and spirituality, partly because of our immaturity, partly because the people that are shoving it down our throats are not particularly skillful. And that that eventually we have to go back and heal that wound. That at the core of Christianity, the core of Judaism, the core of Islam, the core of anything, there is a a profound and beautiful truth. And that maybe we've been resisting the external form of the religion, the, the people that have been presenting it, and kind of have thrown out the baby with the bathwater so that we have to go and find the baby again and, and love that baby. So that's all I have to say there.
5: Thank you so much. That makes a lot of sense. Thank you. Dale, I'm wondering if you could speak to something that you
2: said earlier when you were doing the exercise or meditation after you talked about Ramana Maharshi, and you said that distraction comes from the fear of survival. Right. And that caught my attention. And I'm just wondering if you could say a little bit more about that. Maybe it's because I'm such an aggressive person. It seemed uh, relatively self-explanatory to me. I guess my sense of it is that the part of me that, that feels incomplete and inadequate and is yearning for something if, if your head goes underwater your, your body fights for survival and i think and in, in if we use that as a, a metaphor for for spirituality if you feel like you're drowning in the world that you're overwhelmed by the world or even in a very subtle way that there's some aggression that i want to I want to survive. I want to find a way of being more present and relaxed and devotional in the world so that there's a, there's a struggle. There's an internal civil war that as long as we're approaching life or we're, we're approaching spirituality from a place of incompleteness or poverty or lack, there's going to be aggression. We're, we're, we're fighting against that place where we don't feel whole. And I know you've been coming to these groups for a while. We, we just spent eight weeks talking about the seven chakras. And particularly that interface between the third and the fourth chakra of really working with your own aggression, this third chakra, being empowered, accepting a sense of profound self-esteem, of basic goodness then allows us to go into the heart from a place of fullness rather than I need to open my heart because I feel so separate and inadequate. And I'm trying to, there's almost an aggressive way of I'm opening my heart so that I can find God. Whereas if we have done this work with the lower chakras, we've worked with fear, guilt, and, and, and shame enough, then the aggression begins to fall away. I've been around a lot of, quote, enlightened people, unquote. They had very different kinds of personalities. But what they all seemed to have in common was complete fearlessness, profound compassion, and this lack of aggression. There was not something in them that was struggling with something in them or outside of them. And... There's this internal civil war that's going on. There's this aggression that we're, we're, we're trying to find something. We're trying to get something. Even people who are on the spiritual path, whether you're doing this through meditation or being a Giants fan or a motorcycle racer or whatever activities you're doing in your life, there's this attempt to find some sense of completeness, of connection, of oneness, whether that's conscious or unconscious. Is often motivated by this sense of I, this I, one part of I needs to survive and that there's some aggression there. So that I noticed that for the longest time when I was meditating, there was a part of me that was saying you have to meditate harder. And that I believed, I believed that voice. I believed this, this, this the superego saying more concentration sit longer try harder now clearly in the beginning of practice we do need effort but once you get into intermediate to more advanced stages of practice it's to, in my experience much less about me doing something than surrendering and receiving the grace that is inherent in each moment one of the main practices in tantra is receiving the grace that is always available. Or another way of looking at it is being with a rising experience, moment to moment to moment without needing to conceptualize. The need to conceptualize is coming out of some aggression of, I need to understand this so I can get somewhere. Your original comment was about distraction. And are you saying that the distraction is sort of, uh, in a way, correlated with the aggression? As long as we think something's a distraction, there's aggression there. This is a distraction. This is not a distraction. So that eventually when you get to non-dual, non-practice, like Dzogchen, one of the main slogans is no meditation, no distraction." There's nobody meditating, and nothing is a distraction. Everything is a complete representation, a complete manifestation of the face of God. Everything. Jackie struggled at the end of her life. When I learned to meditate, one of the places was the San Francisco Zen Center, and the meditation hall is kind of below street level. There were small windows up at the top of the wall that were at the sidewalk level. And you'd be sitting there meditating, and right above your head was a window, and there were people making drug deals on the sidewalk right outside of the window, right? Or I was in India, where it was like really quiet at the Burmese temple in Bodh Gaya. And yet you'd hear an ox cart coming from half a mile away with a bell on the ox's neck going ding dong, ding dong, or whatever it did. And it was like so damn distracting. You could hear it coming, and then it was there, and then it was going. And it was completely silent, except for this one bell of this ox. You're just waiting for the ox to leave so you could meditate. Again, right? It's like there, there, there's so much aggression in wanting the ox to not be there. <laughs> Is the stuff of life a distraction? Is, is the fact that it's hard for me to talk, is, is, is that a distraction because of my irritated lungs? Is it a distraction that you've got to earn money, you've got children who are making noise, that your body is deteriorating? Or is, is that not a distraction? Is, is that just the perfect manifestation of the one reality? So imagine dying from, I'm being distracted now, I'm upset now, I'm feeling this, I'm feeling that, or that nothing's a distraction. And to the extent we begin to practice that now, of receiving life whole, not being devoured by the mother, but devouring life, and letting go of the devourer.